Hi, I'm Matt Godbolt. And I'm Ben Rady. And this is Two's Compliment, a programming podcast. Today we're delighted to have a special guest. Claire McRae is joining us. Hi Claire. Hi Matt. Hi Ben. How are you? It's amazing to have us uh, have another guest on our podcast. So we're really excited to, to talk with you about all sorts of things. But uh, do you want to give yourself a little bit of introduction? Tell us about yourself. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I've been programming for a living for more than 30 years now. Um, but my childhood, uh, in the early days, the first language I programmed with was basic. Hooray! And my dad um, got into computing in the very early years of industrial computing in the UK. And so when I started learning basic at school, he got really excited and he got an amazing book called Donald uh, Alcock's Illustrating Basic, spiral bound book with the most amazing pictorial explanations of how to program. It was absolutely brilliant. And he even dad even bought a, an early home computer, a Transam Tuscan, which I've seen one of in the National Museum of Computing in Bletchley Park. I, um, my hobby really incredible. is retro computing, and I have never heard of that computer. That's amazing. What was it called? The Transam Tuscan. That sounds like a car. Yeah, yeah, it's an amazing, amazing thing. <laughs> or a Star thing. Wars character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I started with basic at home and about the same sort of time at the high school or upper school I was at, they had some kind of set up with some, I don't know, remote mainframe. It didn't, didn't matter to me. We had these sort of squares of paper and we could write down our basic programs and we'd send them off. And a few days later, we'd get back a printout with <laughs> some information or an error message and then and rinse and repeat. And then just before I left school, the first BBC Micro arrived and which I know is something quite close to Matt's heart. Right, absolutely. And um, so, yeah, I have this weird memory of uh, the lunchroom, the room, the classroom where it actually was and where we could go at lunch times. But mostly my memories involve standing behind other people in a long queue to get to use it for a few minutes. So I don't actually know how much I used it, but it's a really major memory from my childhood. And then I went on to do a chemistry degree um, but I was just rubbish at practical um, <laughs> chemistry. Two left thumbs, always poured things away at the long mo- long, last moment right at the end. And I had an opportunity to do a year-long um, computing project in chemistry in Fortran. And that in turn stood me in good stead for, for my career in the next 30 years. So I think probably wow. originally from my dad, but it's just... Sort of, I like the programming. I like the logic. It seemed to make sense. Um, didn't always succeed, but you know, you could always learn to get better. So that's that's my early years, really. Gosh, and so when you say computational chemistry, what what I, I don't even understand what that means. Like, I have very basic GCSE level chemistry understanding of like, well, water is two hydrogens and one oxygen kind of level. But what yeah. can you do with a computer program and chemistry? So I kind of have slightly weird imposter syndrome over this because really I'm a computer programmer at heart rather than a chemist. Right. Um, but chemists have said, yeah, but look at the software you've written. You've obviously figured out quite a lot. So you kind of learn over time. Um, computational chemistry is really divided into the sort of theoretical side of things where people are trying to predict 
um, new facts um, or trying to predict the results of experiments. Um, and for years and years and years, the impossible example that was given of that was predicting um, the 3D crystal structures of proteins, which is always like you can't even predict the crystal structures of small molecules. So you have crystal, you know, where a molecule mm-hmm. aggregates in um, three dimensions, you know, like in your salt uh, shaker right. and, that, and again, salt crystals. Vague that kind of memories thing. of seeing like a, a lattice for like the sodium, uh, whatever, salt, salty salt crystal things. Yeah. So it's hard enough for. Um, to predict, um, calculate theoretically the the crystal structures of small molecules. And so proteins, it was it's like, you know, maybe in a few decades they'll solve that. But in the last few months, Alpha, um, Alpha Fold, I think is the name of the project, has just blown away any expectations out of the water. What they've this done is, is Alpha absolutely... like uh, the Google Alphabet um, DeepMind AI company. Yeah, so like AlphaGo a few years ago that shocked the, the Go world. So that's the theoretical side of things, and that's not really something I've had any involvement in. Right. But then there's um, uh, software based on experimental data, and that's that's where my main experience is of working uh, for a non-profit organization for more than 30 years that exists to, to collect uh, the results of crystallography experiments, essentially to collect the results of, to collect information about the shapes of molecules in three dimensions and to collect, crucially, the symmetry operations that say how the molecules aggregate together across the whole crystal structure. And that turns out to be really valuable information. And oh, there's a lot of software involved at all stages of the process. Got it. And so... Uh, what language were you writing all of this this stuff in? So you you were saying you're collecting and aggregating across lots of experiments, um, and yeah, what what form did that take? So the company, well, non-profit organisation that I worked for for more than thirty years. When I joined, it was Fortran seventy seven. <laughs> I joined in nineteen eighty seven. Oh gosh! Um, <laughs> but the organisation is well over fifty years old now. It was it was formed in nineteen sixty five. And and they really were at the forefront of electronic publishing in the late 60s and early 70s, publishing books that they'd written, Fortran 4 software, to plot the chemical diagrams of the structures that were in the database and do the typesetting with Greek characters and subscripts and superscripts that was unheard of at that time. Got it. Um, and by the time I joined, that Fortran 4 had been ported to um, Fortran 77 and... Over time, we evolved to other languages, and um, the majority of my uh, later years there was all C++ and Qt. So I think it was 1999, we, uh, somebody had the idea of porting all our Fortran to C++ and getting rid of the old Fortran, and it took quite a while, but we eventually achieved that. I was going to say, because Fortran's deeply embedded in the science community, and yes. from my own like very limited dalliance with it, um, Fortran has some interesting guarantees about arrays and, and aliasing that C and C++ don't provide, which means that naively converting large Fortran programs to C can actually be a pessimization from a, if performance is important. I mean, maybe performance mm. isn't a big, as big a deal there. Um, so that's an interesting thing to, to have to sell people on to actually convert over to a more modern language. But then I suppose the benefits are it's more easy to uh, work on or easy to test or easy to extend what what kind of benefits what was the re- reasoning behind moving to to a, 
I say more modern, but obviously Fortran's still going. Um, more yes. modern language. Um, I think better design. We were really so I don't have experience of of modern Fortran, but the code we had there was lots of global data. We we were really dependent on common blocks and things like that, and. I mean, it's hard as someone who's been programming for a long time to try and convey to newer colleagues that, yes, this might look ancient to you and not how you do it, but the people who did it at the time, they were, you know, what they were doing was really powerful with, with what they knew at the time and um, providing capabilities that weren't weren't otherwise there. Um, the It was very object-oriented C++ that we ended up with, and we there were lots of things that it would never have been possible to implement in the Fortran days. Um, my career went through a really kind of weird um, evolution of, of responsibilities. So when I started in the the late eighties, early nineties, we you know it was a non profit organisation that evolved out of Cambridge University. We didn't have sales and marketing teams. We didn't even have user support. So the developers did all of those things and internal systems administration as well. So it meant there wasn't a huge amount of time. You, you certainly didn't have 100% of your time on programming, mm -hmm. but you were speaking to users directly. So you had a really good sense of what people needed and this really painful feeling of, yeah, I understand what you need to do, but I have no concept at all of how to do that in Fortran and with the, mm. the code that we had. Things like you started a search of the database and when it got to the end, people wanted to do a new search, but our software just halted and we couldn't see how to rework it to go back to the stuff. Really basic things like Gosh. that. And then over time, we ended up with, you know, powerful user interfaces and really maintainable code. But by that point, there were multiple layers in the organization, meeting the customers, meeting the users and dealing with them. So by then we got all our requests second hand or third hand. Mm -hmm. um, and it was much harder to get that that sort of you know, empathy and direct connection of what do users really want to do. I think, Ben, you were talking in an earlier episode about you want, before you're implementing a feature, you want to actually run it from a user's perspective and really understand yeah. what the user needed to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw that for a long time get harder and harder. And, mm -hmm. and then later on with Agile, we ended up sort of getting more and more direct contact as well. Yeah. So it, it kind of got better. But. Yeah, not only do you lose that empathy, but at least I find that you also lose a um, a fair amount of, I don't know a better way to describe this, but almost problem negotiation, right? Yeah. Where, you know, somebody's trying to accomplish a goal and they might think of it in certain terms, you know, it's sort of like the old, you know, Henry Ford aphorism about if I ask my customers what they want, they would say faster horses, right? Mm. Um, and, and so as a technologist, it's like a lot of times you have, because of your knowledge of technology, you have different ways of looking at a problem. And if you can't have a face-to-face -face conversation with a person who's trying to solve that problem, if that is through a, a second party that may be technical or non-technical, it's, uh, it's tricky, right? Um, mm. You wind up building things that, you know, don't, aren't, aren't either aren't the best solution or in the worst case, don't really solve the problem at all. Cause it's sort of a preconceived yeah. notion of what the problem should be. Um, yeah. is that, so I, I know, I understand that you are now, so you've sort of moved on in your career and you're now, uh, starting to consult. Yes. Um, is, is that one of the things that sort of motivated you to do that? Well, the real motivation for that was, uh, for the last two or three years, I've been volunteering on some open source software uh, for testing hard to test code, legacy code that you think there's no way we can add test to that. There's no way we could break it down. 
And that's an approach uh, called approval tests, which was invented by someone called Llewellyn Falco. And it reached the point where I was just learning so much and I was in this fantastic kind of virtuous circle where I would speak at a local meetup group or a conference, um, which meant I had to learn more about the software in order to be able to talk about it. But then people would ask questions and I would learn more. And that was just taking up more and more of my time. And I kind of reached the stage where, um, you know, I had a fantastic 30 years, but um, I was learning so much that was um, kind of felt I could speak to a different group of people and a wider group of people to share some stuff that I'd learned and worked out, but also a lot of stuff I was learning from other people. And, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really being talked about at C++ conferences. And so I thought it was a way that I could you know, in, in the, the time left that I've got in my career, a way that I could really try and help other people out. Um, yeah. So the motivation wasn't primarily the consulting company. It was, I, I want to, to carry on traveling and going to conferences. And that, that's worked out really well this year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> year of the plague. Well, can't have everything. <laughs> so you, no. you mentioned uh, approval testing. What are approval tests? Approval tests, it's this really strange thing of it's a small body of code that turns out to be fantastically powerful. Mm -hmm. And it's easiest to explain by describing something that I think a lot of people end up inventing themselves and rolling their own, which is you've got some code that already exists and you want to add a test for it and you can't break it down into small chunks. So you... You call some function that generates a lump of data and then you write it out to a text file and you save that as your master version, your anointed version. And then you make your test, repeat that and do some kind of diff. And if it changes in future, then um, you get this great big wall of output that says these 5,000 characters differ from these 5,000 characters and then you cut and paste it into a diff tool and you try and work it right. out. Um, so that's the kind of the, the fundamental that it's based upon and lots of people invent their sort of homegrown um, versions of that. I know I certainly have done. Likewise, um, yeah. <laughs> and what approval tests is is... I guess you, I might call it an abstraction built on top of that, but it has a lot of uh, sensible behavior built in by default. So, for example, if there is a failure, it pops up a differencing tool and it's, it plugs into differencing tools. And so if your different differencing tool shows you these five characters on the left and your uh, new file differ from these 10 characters on the right, you, it makes it much easier to decide whether, oh, I've made a mistake, I need to fix my code, or, oh, that's good, the new feature I just implemented has worked, I'll use the differencing, t- my favourite differencing tool to copy the the received, the, the what we just got over and anoint that as, as the new it's, version. It's funny the language we use for that, because we always call that blessing. And you say anoint, yes. and it has very religious overtones <laughs> to this kind of thing, this holy <laughs> sacred text, which is like what I was expecting it to be. You have to have right? a special I, hat. I wonder what it is that. in our site so yeah. that makes us sort of go towards those things. I, the other thing is like golden is the other sort of yeah. uh, term I've heard for these yeah. things, golden tests and stuff. And yes. certainly for, for yeah. giant, I know like GCC's internals have like all 
thousands and thousands of test cases they've collected along the uh, along the years and like well this is what it should come out to be you know we found this weird situation mm. where it's broken and rather than well as maybe as well as writing individual tests that test those components we're like well this is the piece of code the user had and then this is what it should have generated and so it's a really powerful yeah. thing but to plug it into a diffing tool presumably this is something that you can configure so my ci bill can just go no if it doesn't match and how yes. does yeah yeah yeah, so it recognizes uh, through environment variables, it recognizes if it's running on a bunch of well-known uh, CI systems. And in that case, it writes out a text diff rather than a, um, spinning up a GUI tool because obviously you don't want to block your um, your CI system mm -hmm. if it, you happen to have a graphical installer yep. on it. Um, so, uh, yeah, Llewellyn is a big fan of convention over configuration so in all this library this approach is implemented in python and c sharp and many different layers of net and um, loads and loads of different languages with the same vocabulary describing the steps and the options and the configuration on each of them so i've actually made quite heavy use of the python version myself for home projects um but it turns out that even though it's a, a really simple approach, and, and for the C++ version, we have no, it's it's written in vanilla C++ 11. So we have no um, kind of process control in it or anything like that. So it's got a list of 20 or 30 diffing tools that it looks for in standard locations and on the path. And you can always tell it to use other ones if right. you want. But it turns out that although it's a really simple idea and it's incredibly powerful and convenient, it's also really possible to write code, write tests that generate walls of output that hide the detail that you're actually testing mm -hmm. and that become fragile to maintain. And the worst possible thing is to have it set up so that it writes out too much output and not all of the developers understand the purpose of the test. Because then if you get a test failure and actually it showed a bug, somebody comes along, sees the difference and says, I want to make that test pass. I'll just approve the new output. Mm -hmm. and, and they've lost the signal that, that actually there was something wrong. So there turns out to be lots of nice patterns, one through experience of what information you choose to write and only focus it on the information that's relevant to the particular test case. Include the inputs and a description of what's happening in, in the output as well as what the actual outputs are. Make columns line up so it's easy to glance at and make sure developers understand the difference between seeing a bug and improving the output. Mm -hmm. And then with that comes incredible power and incredible convenience for testing legacy code and hard to test new code. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask, it sounds like this is a tool that you would normally use on a legacy code base, right? Like something that was never designed to be tested. Um, but you also said you were using it in your some of your personal projects. So is this also something that you use for for other things that are not legacy code? Yeah, so I guess there's at least three broad areas for it. So certainly um, you've got a, a lump of code that you can't yet divide up and write unit tests. And so if you can find... Um, a place to hook into it um, to to run the code that you need to run, and that that game that comes with practice. That's that's a a, um, a big use of it. 
It's also really useful. So an example I give is on my PC at home, I have some Python scripts that I use. I download uh, bank statements and um, munge the data so I can import it into um, the finance software <laughs> I use. Okay, no big mm -hmm. deal. And when I wrote it, I kind of had this little personal nagging doubt that I ought to be writing tests for this, but I was never going to. And then I learned about approval tests and I added an old downloaded set of transactions into my, because of course it's version controlled, because why wouldn't you? And then I run approval mm -hmm. tests on it. And whenever I rework the software, which isn't that often, I can rerun the approval tests and see if the behavior has changed. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure whether I would do that sort of thing in a commercial environment, but for, for small projects that you want the convenience of knowing if you've broken it and you don't want mm -hmm. to have to write small sort of user-centered tests, that's that's really good. But there's it's got other things built in, like it's fantastic if you've got large numbers of inputs. So if you've got some function that takes, for now, takes six or eight arguments, it's got a thing called mm -hmm. verify all combinations where you can pass in a container with a set of values for each of the input parameters. And again, there's skill about formatting the output and so on. So, But, you know, in a few lines of code, if you're looking to get good test coverage, even of new code, it's, a, it's very, very quick to, to keep running it through a test coverage and add a new data point, add a new data point to alter that existing array. And so what if you end up with a, a file with 20,000 lines of output uh, because your diffing mm -hmm. tool is only going to show you the differences and you'll get, you often, by seeing the patterns in the failure, oh, look, it's all of the values where parameter three is negative. That's where it's gone wrong. Okay, that tells us where mm -hmm. to look. Um, so, yeah, it's it's fun and it's exciting and it um, it answers some of the questions that you, between you, have touched on in some of the earlier episodes of, yeah, how would you even begin testing here? Yeah, there, there's a lot of when it comes to legacy systems in general, there's a lot of chicken and egg problems that you run into where, you know, in order to make the code testable, you have to be able to change it confidently. And in order to change it confidently, you have to test it. And uh, it's sort of what do you do there? Yeah. This whole approach actually kind of reminds me of a technique that I've used for a while when writing simple bash scripts, where I will, if you're familiar with the watch tool in Linux, uh, it will run a command over and over again. And there's an option for it to show diffs. So it will highlight the differences in the output from one run to the next. And so if I've got a bash script that is fairly simple, right? There's not really any branches or anything. And it's just process a bunch of stuff and split it out on the screen. I'll just run the bash script over and over again in watch, you know, in like a two second or a three second interval, and then edit the script and watch for those differences. Now, you know, I have to be quick. <laughs> <laughs> but... For simple things, it actually works really well. And I almost wonder if, you know, being able to, for more complicated things, um, being able to pipe the output through a tool like this and run it using um, something else like, um, probably like with ENTR or some other sort of uh, file system event-based tool where it's not just running every three mm. seconds, it's running only when I make a change, uh, could be another way to sort of test, because bash scripts are notoriously difficult to test. Yeah. Like there are ways and they're all terrible. Um, 
And so I, I wonder if this could be yet another tool in the toolbox of I have a 500 line bash script that's like incredibly important to my company. And if it ever breaks, we're all screwed, but I still need to change it today. So what do I do? Right. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's really interesting. So um, I guess uh, one of the things I like about bash is you can turn on all sorts of warnings uh, and make it fail mm -hmm. if you have un uh, try to use an un yeah. unset variable. Set UO pipe fail. Yeah, yes. yeah. I don't you do it often enough to have memorized the runes, but I can always find it really, really quickly. <laughs> and they are runes. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the things I'm quite envious of in some other languages than, than – um, uh, than C++ is tools like ncrunch. So tools that are built into IDEs mm -hmm. and they're always running your tests as you're typing. So, you know, it comes back to your, your rule of eights and you need your test to be really, really fast or to be able to select only the tests that you're working mm -hmm. for the area that you're working on. Um, so that, um, what was that tool that you mentioned um, that runs, did you say it was watch? Oh yeah, watch. So the when I'm when I'm working with with bash scripts, I'll generally. I mean, I I actually do this. I use watch for lots of things. It's a super useful tool. Um, but it just runs a command over and over again. And there are, there are options to show uh, like differences from one out set of output to the next, and it can be really useful for uh, all kinds of things. But yeah, running running bash scripts is is a great use of it, and just seeing those diffs. More generally as well, you can use it for like, uh, there's an option that says exit when the output changes. So it runs the command mm -hmm. once and then caches it. And then it keeps running the command over it every two seconds until the output changes. Yeah. So if you've got like a directory you're waiting for a program to write something into, you can do like watch, and I forget the command line, you know, dash dash quit if change, ls. And then you walk mm -hmm. away from your computer and it comes back and it's like, oh, it completed then when someone wow. else dropped the file in the directory you were expecting, which is like super poor man's uh, watching tool, uh, what was a file system monitoring tool or yeah. But uh, there's a number of things you can do that with, you know. That makes me want to play around um, with, if I've got, you know, small C++ projects I'm building and as I'm typing, I want to rerun the tests. If I had watch building the code and running the test and obviously as I, because, you know, modern IDEs, you can make them save as you type. Mm -hmm. Then you don't even have to remember to run the test in the IDE. You uh Set right. watch up running, and you can keep an eye on. You'll see yeah. when your tests pass or fail. That's that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you do something like this, I think, Ben. When it comes to like Python, um, yeah. The times when I've worked in C plus plus too, I actually do this with another tool, which I, I think I mentioned called ENTR, where I have ENTR watch my um, like you know resulting test binary, and then whenever it changes, I run it. Mm. So it's like I'll just count on the IDE to do the compilation for me. Um, but then whenever it successfully compiles a new test binary, ENTR will run the tests. So even if my IDE doesn't support automatically running tests, I can kind of make it do it in a terminal. Um, and it's just, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, why, you know, why do two steps when I can only do one, right? Especially if I'm doing it all the time. Um, so if I can turn, you know, control S into the feedback loop that tells me everything that I need to know about my code, whether it's, you know, did it compile successfully? Okay, great. Yeah. You know, did the test run? Okay, great. Um, it's just, it just makes life easier. And um, yeah, those, those tools are super easy to use and install because it's just, you know, apt install ENTR and point it at a file and tell it what command you want to run and Bob's your uncle. Really exciting. The, the very first version of, of Compiler Explorer was in fact just a watch 
and GCC and a bunch of pipes. <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's That's so uh, funny. Yeah, it's a, a very valuable uh, prototyping web web development prototyping tool. It turns out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So I've got a question about how you'd start approval testing. How does one go? You, you mentioned, for example, earlier, like making a procedural set of like run all these six different parameters and here's three different values mm. for the a parameter and true and false for b or whatever it is obviously that's going to generate your you know two hundred thousand line output which you correctly say you know like if you if you catch a mistake hopefully if you've done it right it's a subset of those lines and your diff tool only mm. shows you the lines that make sense but when you go from nothing to that how do you do you just kind of go i hope there's no bugs to begin with let's just bless whatever comes out the first time we run it and then we're using it more to see if i changed it well yes yeah so built into approval tests is the idea that if you the first time you run a test of course you don't have the approved output it doesn't know what it is so and a lot of diffing tools don't like it if you give it a non-existing file on the command line so the first time you run a test and it derives the file names from the names of your tests. So it comes up with sensible names. You don't have to think about any of this. It just, you can change the name if you want, but by default, it does sensible things. So it says, oh, I see you haven't got an approved file for this. I'll create an empty file and then show you um, the empty file and the current output side by side. Right. And when you're working with legacy code, code that exists and you're trying to sort of lock down the behavior by writing tests the right answer is always the current behavior yeah mm -hmm. uh, because usually at that point you you're wanting to well you either wanting to add a feature or fix a bug and maybe you need to do some refactoring first but you want to make sure that you don't accidentally change the so behavior you lock in the existing behavior and say what well, even if it's not doesn't make sense even if it's not exactly what the customer wants at the moment, I'm in the do no harm stage of the sort of cycle. I I make my my uh, my test. I lock in that behavior. And then I maybe go do my refactoring, and then I run my test again. And if it all still passes, then I know I haven't changed anything that I had done before. That makes perfect sense. I mean, it's a yes. standard sort yeah. of cycle, except that instead of me having to invest the time thinking about what is it I must test about my code in order to be confident that the changes I'm about to make don't make it. I'm kind of using a sort of global view of like well just the as long as we execute the code path and as long as the representation of the output is uh, to your point uh captures all of the things that are interesting about what i want to test then i just need to run it and output that and that's my my starting point that's exactly right and it's it wouldn't be unusual at that point for you to see something in the output and go oh, that looks wrong <laughs> <laughs> and so um don't mix up changing the behavior with refactoring the code those op those actions need to be kept separate mm. and i heard i've heard some fun war stories about and and if you think there is a bug don't go and change it until you've spoken to somebody who knows <laughs> the yeah, product yeah people have been um, relying on that bug for years exactly. so i can't go changing it now <laughs> <laughs> exactly iron's yeah. law yes yeah yeah how do you deal with um, the sort of like, I mean, I can think of a, cat a certain categories of things where you might get tripped up, like time, you know, yeah. uh, things that are, things that vary by time, uh, unique identifiers, uh, GUIDs, you know, potentially depending on what the inputs values are. Like, how do you, how do you deal with those kinds of things in the textual output? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So the approval tests approach has a vocabulary for code to deal with that situation called scrubbers. 
And so the kind of um, so uh, the way you do it is you you know you run a test, you, you approve the output, then you run the test again and it fails, and you see there's a date and time stamp that's different, for example. Well, we have various helpers that you can use to say, well, if it's a GUID, we have a thing which says convert any anything that matches a GUID regular expression to some kind of placeholder text. And it even says it keeps track of the GUIDs it's matched. So if the same GUID appears three times, it will say, I think it's in square mm. brackets or something like that, GUID one. And then That's the next it. different, it's if it comes up with a different GUID, it says GUID two. Date and time is a bit harder because of locales and things like that. We can't, it's out of the scope of our project to deal with every locale worldwide. So we've also got uh, regular expression um functions that you can call and you pass in a regular expression and then some replacement text and so you can say convert all, all everything that matches this date and time regular expression to something perhaps in square brackets that says date and timestamp. Um, mm-hmm. so and um, so we we focus on having helper functions to make it easy to do that and you program in the logic that you want for the pattern you want to replace and so the kind of the conventional answer with date and times is, well, you create a, a policy object that reports what the current date and time is, and you inject that all the way down your code until the actual point, and then who knows what you've broken on the way and how much time you've spent. Whereas the approval tests, uh, approval tests approach is now nah, just write out the file and then reread it afterwards and munge it in any way you want to, to sort of beat it into submission to serve your needs and save your time. It's a fantastic different way of looking at things, um, but I love it. Hmm. Uh, have you ever used this technique on things that aren't particularly well represented as text? I mean, you know, if you base 64 encode anything, you can represent it as text, but <laughs> say like podcast audio or a video or a picture or uh, something like that, where the textual representation isn't particularly informative. Yeah, so when I was working on a 3D visualization program for visualizing crystal structures, I had to add a new style of visualization for uh, that people have been asked users have been asking for for decades, and we finally made the time to to implement that. And I was on a quite a tight loop of I don't even know the maths at this point, so I'll have a first stab and then run a few hundred or a few thousand uh, crystal structures through it and see which ones crash and. Um, so I used approval tests for that. So my approved um, and received images were PNG files, I think. And at that point, I was never going to be able to commit those to our version control system, which was already several gigabytes in size. Um, but uh, I was able to run it repeatedly on my machine, and it made for really good conversations with the product owner. who was He was a fantastic product owner, really helpful, really responsive. And uh, sometimes he would say, yeah, that matters. We need to fix that. And other times he would say, people using that kind of structure are not going to be using this display style, so it doesn't matter. And if I hadn't Mm. had that conversation, I would have tried to make it look pretty rather than saying, well, at least stop it crashing, but don't try and make (laughs) it look nice. The other thing I've seen it used a lot in is audio. And there seems to be a pattern of people asking for help um, with testing audio outputs. And it turns out there are some nice approaches around, say that what you're generating is an audio wave. You'd save that as a bunch of numbers and 
that would be the right answer, but that's really hard to understand when there's a failure. Well, it's easy to build in um, extra code very quickly that says, and also generate a picture of this, some kind of visual representation Is this of like it. like ASCII art? <laughs> um, well, I mean, if you've got some software that can generate the, like the wave, the audio wave. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, and you probably wouldn't version control those you wouldn't need to that the text output is the master thing but if you get a failure then approval test has a concept called reporters and you can say as well as popping up a difference of the numbers also convert them both to something that you can visualize and then open them up in a diffing tool that visualizes differences in images really well and you can show it to a domain expert who says yes, that matters, or actually no human is going to be able to distinguish between those two, just to accept the new answer. Mm -hmm. So anything that um, you can create, any kind of visual representation of is really amenable to this. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I can imagine that the uh, combination of factors there could definitely get challenging, where it's like, okay, I have date and time sensitive information inside of an SVG file that I've generated. And the only way to see that the differences are material is to open them up in two SVG editors and compare them and say like, yep, no, that makes <laughs> sense. Or versus like, nah, this isn't really important. And then yeah. building all the tools to filter all that stuff out so you don't get pulse, false positives. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's a, there's another implementation of approval tests that's in Python called, um, I want to say text diff, but I'll make sure the right link is in the show notes in case I've got that wrong. Um, and it allows you to do things like approving uh, web pages and PDF files and things like that. And it does that by building on the power of Python to convert those files to text representations. So, for example, you've got a PDF and... Yeah, someone might want to inspect the styling, but mostly you want to make sure you haven't changed the content of it, the text content. So run a Python tool to extract and nicely format the text content, displayed text content, and then use that for approving. Hmm. Um, so there's all sorts of, once you sort of free your mind from, well, there's this exact output and I have to make sure it doesn't change more to... Well, what do users need to, um, perhaps uh, domain experts need to see in order to understand whether there's a meaningful change or not? Mm -hmm. It becomes super powerful. And depending on the time that you've got, you could leave the output, uh, the testing being done via approval tests. You could leave a few tests in as an integration test down the line, or maybe you want to use it as a place or a placeholder on the way and use it to learn about the behavior of the code mm -hmm. by feeding in lots of different inputs and then write down um, a kind of business logic based, uh, user, user expressed tests mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's 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 yeah depending on your scenario approval test might be the end point or it might be a step on the way yeah i mean i would argue in most cases that it's like if you can make that additional transition and go from something where you know you're using a sort of capture based testing solution whether it's approval tests or um you know there's there's other tools for this as well to something where you can have more targeted tests, like in general, that's good. But 
I certainly wouldn't want to recommend that everybody do that because uh, given yeah. the state of certain legacy code bases, that just is not economically feasible. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's it's an interesting line. And it's sometimes hard to to find those lines of like, you know, yeah, you know, the suite of approval tests that we have. Like, okay, I guess one question would be, in your experience, how long do these tests take to run? It, I would assume it's kind of like highly dependent on the system, right? Yeah, yeah. So the if you were running incredibly fast calculations through them, then I think the majority of the time would be the file I/O because it writes out the mm -hmm. the current output, and then it finds a matching file, and then it reads it. And it says, is it equivalent? And if you've put in a regular expression, it's applying that. Mm -hmm. And then it launches a diffing tool if it's different. So there is a certain amount of overhead with that. And I do know the theory of uh, if it touches the file system, it's not a unit test. But the people I'm talking to have no test at all and no confidence in changing right. their code. Right. And so at that point, any test is better than no test. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so... We haven't talked about well, what if you can't pull out a usable chunk of code to throw uh, data in and, and, and run through approval tests. Uh, so there's a whole extra skill that that comes mm -hmm. there with um, learning enough about safe refactoring to be able to and how much you trust the refactoring tools in your IDE mm -hmm. <laughs> um, right. and that you aren't using some obscure corner of a language where you've I don't know got inconsistent assignment operators and or something you know you who would write in such a language anyway though yeah. allow that to be a, <laughs> be a thing I mean yeah. um, <laughs> so there's, it turns out the more that you look at this stuff, the more experience there is out there and the more there is to be learned about using IDEs to uh, separate out um, chunks of code into functions that you can call and, and reuse. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't yet attended it yet, but um, uh, Llewellyn Falco and Jay Bazuzzi in the States have been running some workshops on how to safely get code under test that has no tests by almost entirely doing completely automated refactorings. Yeah. So you yeah. don't make you at each stage you see what the next tiny change you want to make is mm -hmm. and they do amazing transformations of code. Um it sounds really exciting and and they they're running a series of those right now and I'm really looking forward to attending. Yeah. Happens to be in C sharp but the requirement because you're using the IDE to do the work, all you need to do is be able to read C sharp, which is <laughs> that's no problem. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Certainly, when I was working at Object Mentor with James, uh, that our our preferred technique, or at least my preferred technique for doing this in Java, um, and part of this is just that Java IDEs are so powerful. But doing this in Java was you just rely on the automated refactorings. And, you know, read the code that was produced, like make sure that it also makes sense to you. Don't just blindly hit buttons, but mm. um, rely on the automated refactorings that come from, you know, IntelliJ or Eclipse to be semantically equivalent in most cases and try to find the minimal number of automated refactorings it takes to get the tests in place. And then from there, you can start refactoring the code that is covered by the tests manually. Yeah. Um, have you, I mean, I would imagine that that kind of technique would not only be useful for unit tests, but also for approval tests. Like, you know, 
Have you have you done that where you're sort of like using automated refactoring techniques to create a, a hook for these kinds of things? Yes, yeah. Um, the main IDEs I use these days are C Lion for C++ and PyCharm for Python. Mm-hmm. And the refactoring tools work so much better in Python than in C++ and they, they tend to be quite a lot quicker as well. So it becomes a case of learning what tools work well and um, you know, perhaps occasionally you need to move a variable around before you divide the code up so it's got mm-hmm. less scope to, to search. But um, So yeah, that is something that I have been um, enjoying learning about and... Um, by coincidence, I'm going to be putting my money or my time where my mouth is uh, coming up soon. So on the 16th of February, I'm doing a webinar for JetBrains, a live webinar, um, uh, talking about using refactoring in C-Line to add tests from no tests. Mm -hmm. That that builds on a That builds on an earlier webinar that um, Arnie Metz did a few years ago. Um, where he was showing sea lion refactoring tools. And I learned a bunch from watching his video. But at the end, somebody said, what if you don't have tests? And I thought, well, that's a, that's a good thing to explain. Right. <laughs> that's where you your experiences can come in and, and show, well, this is how you can get tests from essentially from nothing almost, right? You can use the existing yeah. behavior to build your tests. So if you're listening to this podcast sometime soon after the 16th of February, the video of that will be available. Um, the main focus of that is going from no tests to having tests that you can trust and have confidence in. And then in March, I'm doing a talk at the ACCU conference, online conference. And that's much more specifically about refactoring and uh, getting the IDE to do your work for you. Uh, so there'll be a lot of a lot of practicing and a lot of experimenting in different IDEs and comparing the refactoring tools and so on. So you mentioned actually just going back a little bit here that um, the approval test library that you've been working on is open source. So uh, presumably we can go and find out. Remind me what it's called and where we might find it. So the approach is called approval tests, and there's a couple of good URLs to go to. Uh, Approvaltest.com has got a bunch of links from there, and many of the implementations are in the GitHub user approvals. Uh, so GitHub slash approvals is is the other possibility, and you'll see all the different languages that are supported there. Right. So there's, there's more than just C plus plus there. You said Python before now, and um, many other languages as well. So this sounds like something which is yeah. just, as you say, it's a generally applicable approach, and um, given the same sort of set of was it, was it scrubbers was one of the sort of terms of that you used, and then um, yeah, what was the thing that does the transformation from like the text output to something else for diffing at the end? If you were, if if it was uh, like you mentioned with the audio example, what was the name of that? So the vocabulary it uses for the diffing tools is reporters. So right. that's how it shows, and you can write your own reporter that converts to a different file format and then does the diffs and things like that. Cool. Um, looking at approvaltest.com, it's got about the the logos of about 12 or more different languages java c sharp c++ php python swift javascript um lua objective c ruby and um perl perl yeah well, i mean i guess it makes sense it's still going <laughs> that's fantastic so how can people find out more about you and how can they contact you um online so on Twitter, I'm Claire McRae UK. 
and my website is clairemacrae.co.uk. And I would say I love testing challenges. If you've got small testing challenges, just contact me and we can chat and perhaps share code online or something like that. Also available for training and consulting on code as well. But um, I'm in the lucky position of this is this is my fun and my hobby um, and uh, I love sharing what I've learned. So help me learn more. Yeah, sounds That's good. fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And yeah, it's been absolutely brilliant to have you. Thank you. It's been huge fun and great to meet you too, Ben. Yeah, great to meet you, Claire. You've been listening to Two's Compliment, a programming podcast by Ben Rady and Matt Godbold. Find the show transcript and notes at twoscompliment.org. Contact us on Twitter at 2CP, that's at T-W-O-S-C-P. Theme music by Inverse Phase, inversephase.com.